Welcome to The Next Level, a Partners Trust podcast series featuring thought leaders and entrepreneurs from both inside the company and beyond. I'm Nick Siegel, and today I'm talking with Sean May, founding partner of Partners Trust China, and we'll be discussing the current mood and appetite for U.S. real estate investments by Chinese investors. So, Sean, welcome, and thank you so much for your time today. If I'm not mistaken, it's, what, 9 o'clock Tuesday morning uh, for you in Shanghai, when here it is, uh, Monday at 6 p.m. Is that accurate? Uh, yes, indeed it is, uh, uh, Nick. And uh, thanks for having me on this uh, podcast. And uh, good morning, or uh, as we say, ciao, shanghao. Xie So uh, for our listeners unfamiliar with you and with Partners Trust China, let's talk briefly about our presence there, our office in Shanghai, and what your focus is uh, at this time, Sean. Uh, well, first of all, uh, Partners Trust China is uh, based in the heart of Shanghai. Uh, we are this waterfront called the Bund. Um, our focus is um, to advise high net worth individuals and families on their uh, overseas real estate investment. Uh, we tend to cover a variety of topics, uh, ranging from education planning, uh, which is one of the you know, one of several main reasons for overseas investment, uh, immigration, taxes, wealth management, uh, cultural immersion, and of course real estate. Right. Um, we, yeah, and we have uh, relationships uh, with a, uh, a fairly uh, broad list of clients uh, through our relationship with uh, private banks, international schools, and. Uh, international programs at top domestic schools, family offices, uh, wealth management companies, and uh, luxury travel operators. Well, I know that when I saw you last in the States at our Leverage uh, Global Partners uh, Navigate conference, uh, people were riveted by what you had to say about the current realities in China. I know it's a moving target, and uh, it's just, I, I think it's such a wonderful opportunity for all of us at Partners Trust to have you as a resource and uh, the connectivity between uh, we here in Los Angeles and you there in both mainland China and our office in Shanghai. So uh, I'm just really uh, happy that you are with us. So let's get to some questions that uh, both come from our associates and some things that we've put together in our discussions. First question, we're hearing a lot of challenges uh, faced by Chinese investors. And so what does that mean in the short and uh, longer term for the U.S. Uh, from an investment perspective in general and for the state of California? Uh, well, with the, first of all, some of the challenges are not unique to Chinese investors. The volatility in global markets, political situations, it's all uh, making investors take pause as to what to do next. Uh, what is unique to Chinese investors is uh, managing uh, their the liquidity of their uh, of their assets. Uh, basically, how to get money out of China and um, uh, and how much you can get out. Um, Chinese government has put in place, uh, as most know, a very stringent policies uh, early part of this year, and not much is expected to change until November of this year. Um, and why November? Uh, there are three major events that are coming up. Uh, in September, the International Monetary Fund um, will execute its inclusion of the RMB, or the Chinese Yuan, as uh, one of five reserve currencies in the world. Um, that's a major step towards making the RMB freely tradable. Um, the other events that are in the world are obviously the U.S. presidential elections. Uh, the Chinese are watching that closely. Uh, Brexit, the effects of it. 
um, all of that um, will, you know, happen just right around that time. And then the end of this year, uh, China is opening up its uh, capital markets, or intends to open up its capital markets. It's the third largest in the world, but currently only 3% is accessed by foreign investors. Um, this opening up this market will attract foreign investors to China and act as a counterbalance to the anticipated flow of money out of the country. And so all these things are working together and the Chinese government is, is uh, managing this in the short term uh, and making sense out of it before they'll start opening up and loosening the policies for uh, outflow of cash. Um, once it's in place, uh, what it means is that the um, money will start to flow again, most likely a much greater amount starting from the beginning of next year. Uh, when it does, California will be obviously one of the first to benefit from that. Do you think that um, these investors want to actually reside in these homes in California. I know that in one of our local uh, markets in San Marino, we've got a lot of properties that were bought up by Chinese investment, and they're now sitting dormant. And there's literally a glut of rental properties owned by these Chinese investors, and they're just sitting there. So I, I know that uh, the Chinese community uh, is very incestuous in terms of how they speak to each other and they communicate quickly. How do you think this sort of investment mindset changes as the flow of money uh, becomes more um, readily available to foreign countries such as the United States and California? Any insights you can share on that? Well, I think it's going to be... Uh, fairly long process for uh, uh, Chinese investors actually to reside or to see these investments as a, um, a place where they will reside for the long term. Um, and many of them uh, are using these uh, purchases as a, as a means to, uh, as a safe haven investment and just basically just park their money in a stable, um, in a stable property. And, uh, and so I think you will continue to see that trend increasing uh, especially in the uh, called the first wave of investors, you know, after the uh, the policy, uh, the currency policy are loosened. Um, now, the once that happens, though, um, you know, as uh, Chinese investors then uh, go overseas and get more immersed into the culture and also business opportunities uh, that present themselves, I think you're going to start to see uh, actual sort of immigration. An actual uh, taking up residence of, the, of these properties, but it's going to take a while. I think the first uh, first wave of investors and might actually take years. Um, they're not quite ready to to actually move there, but to move overseas. Mm-hmm. But uh, they are uh, you know parking their their wealth overseas, prepared maybe for their kids, and um, they do have a long term plan in place. I understand. You know, one of the things that we hear in our media, this whole idea of the collapse of China, uh, should we be worried about that? Uh, obviously, the, the driver that is the Chinese economy is so impactful to the entire globe. Um, any insights from that perspective? Is that media? Uh, I would imagine the Chinese government ideally knows what they're doing in terms of their monetary policy so that they don't collapse their own government. But uh, your thoughts on that, Sean? 
Uh, well, I think there's uh, there's obviously there are troubling signs, you know, in the uh, in the Chinese economy. Um, but I do think that um, um, some of it is misunderstood as well. Um, and I think mainly because uh, a lot of analysts, uh, you know, and media, they look at the Chinese economy and financial sector, uh, you know, through the lens of overseas free markets. Um, and uh, you know, Chinese financial policies and its system is frankly an extension of um, you know, overall sort of central government policies and objectives. And um, it's not a truly a, a free market system. It's, a, it's very much a managed system. You know, even the stock markets uh, don't behave completely freely. And um, you know, one example, uh, one of the troubling signs is that uh, China has a... Um, uh, very substantial debt, and uh, many analysts point to this and see that as a trigger of uh, impending doom and collapse. Um, but uh, for one, it's still much lower than, uh, for example, the U.S. by almost like 30 percent. And um, and secondly, you know, China does have the central government controls, you know, to mitigate this debt to uh, to change the national policies. You know, in a way, they can write off a lot of it. You know, so. Um, you know, after last August and um, the, the stock market collapse, and earlier this year in January, I think global media was forecasting uh, a meltdown, but it never came. And um, not all of these issues can be entirely mitigated, um, but the point is uh, not to look at the situation uh, from a standpoint purely of free markets. Mm. You know, it's a, because you get a wrong idea. Basically, you know, it's it's much more managed. And uh, uh, one of the, the, the main differences in terms of uh, the government is that it can have the um, it can have a long-term plan, and basically it is executing a long-term plan. It needs to make adjustments for things that happen outside of its control. Um, but they are you know, playing you know very much according to a long-term playbook. Mm-hmm. And speaking of investment, so we, we see the slowdown of ind- more individual Chinese investment. And yet, when we look at Chinese companies and the massive investments that they're making uh, in the United States, uh, one, what are those types of investments they're making? And how, how does a Chinese company differ from the mindset and the allowance of, uh, say, a Chinese individual investor, Sean? Yeah, I, th- I think it's uh, there also, it touches a little bit on what I was uh, um, talking about earlier, that it all is part of an, an overall plan, if you will. And um, it's important to make a distinction as to what a uh, Chinese investor means. Uh, the individual investor will behave very different from an, an institutional investor. And right now, what you've seen in the news of uh, Chinese companies uh, buying, you know, multi- doing multi-million dollar deals, and I think in the last year, um, actually has uh, spent about a trillion uh, dollars overseas um, on acquisitions and investments. Uh, all of those companies are either they are state-owned, state-owned enterprises like insurance companies, etc., um, or they're very large private companies um, that uh, uh, in China they wouldn't have become large without some type of support or connection to government. So um, the large investments that you hear are... Um, Doing so with the blessing of uh, central government and uh, uh, and playing again according to that same playbook, um, all of it is uh, with the objective to transform China's traditional economy that has some trouble you know, just inside of it, the uh, 
um, sort of the large state-owned enterprises that are doing so well, and to transform that into a consumption-driven economy. And what they're doing is that they're basically reshaping themselves. You know, and um, many of these companies that you see buying or making these acquisitions, um, they are doing so, um, you know, with without so the limitations of uh, uh, the outflow on, on cash. And there you can actually see the reverse happening: is that they tend to over overspend, if you will. They they tend to um, pay more than is is necessary, and and, uh, um, and that's basically because they have uh, they've been directed in order to make these acquisitions, and they will make them at any cost. Um, now, for individuals, um, the, the situation is different, and there, uh, uh, you know, governments can direct, um, but not entirely control. And so the only way to control the outflow is to manage the uh, the flow of currency itself, mm. and that's basically what you're seeing happening. You and I had had a conversation at the the Leverage uh, Global Partners event in the spring, and we talked about the secondary and the tertiary markets of China, mainland China, and that there was a big focus of the Chinese government to have uh, investors prop up those secondary and tertiary markets before they started to allow those investors to leave, uh, you know, have their money exit China. How has that been going? Has that policy directive uh, gained traction? And are those secondary markets, at least at this point, being um, consumed so that they can then get to that tertiary third level market? Uh, yeah, I would say overall the policy uh, has been effective for the, the variety of policies have been effective. And, um, so right around the same time that the uh, um, the currencies were more stringently controlled, there are additional policies that were made in order to make it easier for Chinese investors to uh, to buy domestically. Um, there was a, uh, a waiving of uh, property taxes and things like that. And so, um, and, and they have been and so, by and large, been uh, uh, been doing exactly what was intended. Um, there's still a a glut, if you will. Um, the uh, first of all, the the, the first tier cities, the markets are holding steady. Um, the second and third tier um, cities have seen sort of an increase in investment, uh, probably not as much as the uh, the government had hoped for, um, but it certainly has uh, uh, it has worked. Uh, and um, especially now, you know, with the, um, the control of um, the combination of these policies uh, has driven investors to look more sort of domestically. Um, it also, it is important to know, uh, because there's a lot of um, articles that show some of these ghost cities in China uh, and uh, where sort of similar phenomenon that you uh, touched on earlier happens where people buying property, but they're not living in them. And, um, and basically just leaving them alone, if you will. Um, a part of that is also by design. Um, the, the, the overall uh, government policy is uh, based on a 15-year plan to locate 300 million people from the uh, countryside into uh, China cities. And if you stop and think about that, you know, 300 million people, that's uh, almost the entire population of the United States. And, um, and to relocate that many people into cities 
uh, you need new facilities, you need new homes, and uh, you need to build, in essence, enough property uh, to house the entire United States in 15 years. And so, so that's uh, part of what's happening. Now, some of those uh, relocations hasn't really uh, been executed entirely yet. And so the ghost cities are, are basically saying they are waiting. Um, but the big problem that, um, uh, that exists in the market is there's a um, discrepancy in values, if you will. So the people that are supposed to move in there uh, can't necessarily afford the, the, uh, the properties that have been constructed. And there's a, there's a discrepancy. Um, but it is in the, within the power and the authority of the uh, Chinese government ultimately to make that work. And, um, you know, we'd expect that within uh, the next, you know, five, ten years that actually those ghost cities will actually get occupied and, um, and uh, um, so the, the, the investment by uh, Chinese domestic investors, they will see some, uh, they will yield some returns. Great. Thanks for that. So shifting gears a little bit. Let's talk more about uh, appetite and uh, uh, demand from a perspective of once this flow of money becomes more readily available and, and investors can uh, make their investments abroad, in the United States, um, are the usual city suspects still uh, of high demand, uh, New York, um, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Miami, and are there other emerging areas where um, investors may look to um, take root? Yeah, I think um, the, the Chinese investors are always looking for value. And uh, uh, first of all, you know, uh, the reason why you have sort of traditional gateway cities is because of uh, familiarity um, and prestige also. Um, but as uh, more and more Chinese investors um, um, become familiar with uh, the United States and the property market, um, I think you already start see, uh, seeing this. Uh, you are seeing this happening. Um, uh, there's interest in other cities now in the Midwest, in uh, in the South, uh, in Texas, and um, in Chicago, and you know, places like that. Um, and that is already happening. And I think it will just broaden. Um, as I mentioned earlier, the investors will come in waves, and the first wave will go to the gateway cities, um, and. Those same investors will also be looking for additional investments. Um, I think once the currency issue is resolved, um, the amount of money that will come over actually is going to be pretty vast. And so they will be looking um, be, uh, beyond the, the gateway cities. Mm. Well, and value has always been uh, a key component to uh, purchases. And I remember when. Uh, the market was booming in China, and they were getting 30% returns on their money, and they wanted to shift that their eyes to the United States, and they were looking for those same types of returns that weren't to be found. Um, what is the mindset now? Uh, how do you define a, a solid investment from a Chinese investor at this stage? Well, I think uh, currently um, they're mostly... Uh, looking at sort of safe haven type of uh, properties. And, and so it's not so much the immediate or the short-term return that, um, that is high on the, um, on the wish list, if you will. Um, you know, as they become more uh, familiar with the, um, um, the property market, uh, I think ultimately you know, they'll, 
be looking at um, you know, returns uh, probably in the uh, you know 10 to 15 percent range. Uh, and I think there, you know the reality uh, is just that uh, uh, you know those high returns that uh, Chinese investors experience domestically. Um, are just not that realistic anymore. They understand that. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. You know, one of the ways we, our, our ability to leverage money uh, through banks and enhance our return, you know, if I pay cash for something and the, the property uh, organically appreciates year over year at about a 3% return, it, it's very different than if you can, you know, borrow money and have a down payment and leverage that return and make improvements to properties and then accelerate that appreciation without using all of your cash. It'll be an interesting dynamic if banks start to, as this flow of money comes forward, uh, to accommodate uh, Chinese investors uh, with collateral and bank deposits, whatever whatever those um, securities they look for. But it could be an interesting dynamic with this flow of money if banks start getting involved um, do you see banks that are that currently have relations East West Bank as an example with relationships uh, both domestically and in uh, well domestically for the United States and in China uh, creating policies and things of that nature is there any talk of that uh, liquidity uh, opportunity yeah actually there's uh, more than uh, talk of that you you're seeing uh, banks uh, American banks uh, European banks already setting up offices in China and um, the licensing process is a fairly long one but you already see this happening where uh, they're looking at the future and uh, looking at um, uh, Chinese investors going overseas and uh, wanting to right now basically experimenting with ways in order to um, uh, to almost like uh, develop like credit scores if you will and, and mm. uh, credit worthiness and, and a way to to evaluate that you know, uh, from within China um, and uh, banks are they, are they already are increasing their presence uh, in China um, I mentioned before that the uh, Chinese government is looking to open up the uh, capital markets um, and uh, especially the government bond market etc uh, et and it is uh, anticipated that the, uh, the the primary institution that will uh, first start taking advantage of that would be uh, national banks and or international banks um, that um, basically will have a greater sort of stake in the Chinese market. Um, and as a result, I think you can see uh, more of this crossover, uh, you know, lending and uh, uh, financial instruments becoming available to uh, to Chinese investors uh, to you know borrow from within China and spend overseas and so and leverage their assets that way. Uh, but it's already taking place. And it's uh, so um, I think the direction for the future is not only uh, will it be easier to get cash out of the country, but there will be many more instruments available in order to uh, you know, to leverage the assets uh, that the uh, you know, Chinese own inside of China. Well, I, I think this next five years is going to be, um, the landscape, landscape is going to change dramatically. Last, the number that I'm going to throw out, it was $4 trillion worth of U.S. currency is held by, uh, uh, by the Chinese government. Is that still the accurate number? And uh, what, what is that number at this point? Do you know? 
Uh, yeah, actually, it's, uh, it's a little bit less than that. It, the total foreign currency uh, reserve is uh, hovering right now around uh, $3.5 trillion. Um, and uh, there was a, um, it, it went down quite a bit, quite a bit uh, last year uh, as um, China dipped into that reserve in order to prop up the value of the, uh, uh, the RMB uh, and dropped at the lowest level, I think, got down to about $3.1 trillion. Um, but it's um, obviously still very significant, and, um, and uh, it is, uh, uh, you know, one of the, uh, the, the factors actually that they are um, that the government is looking into as to how to manage all of that. So you have all of these assets, um, you have um, a, a capital market that is uh, that's right now by and large just um, isolated from the rest of the world. Um, you have uh, your investment uh, power that you can leverage. Um, but at the same time, uh, you want to control all this, you know, manage in a way that it doesn't become just chaos. You know, as you can imagine, there's just a lot of pent-up demand in order uh, from investors in order to diversify and not have all of their eggs in in China, in mm-hmm. China's basket, if you will. And so there's a lot of this pent-up pressure to um, to go overseas once the so gates open. And I think uh, the central government is, uh, is, in fact, doing a very good job of trying to get hardest in order to not for it to become floodgates, but rather sort of a managed um, flow. Yeah. You know, and both, you know, both out and in, you know, and and balance that, um, uh, you know, these uh, these activities so that uh, not only for the benefit of the Chinese economy, but you can imagine if you have uh, a shock to the uh, system like that. If there's a, all of a sudden, um, you know, what's, uh, what's anticipated actually is that even with all the controls, that uh, outflow of money from uh, investment from China into the U.S. over the next five years um, could um, reach an uh, order of magnitude of, uh, of 10, you know, of uh, basically a tenfold increase in investment, basically going from Right now, uh, about twenty some billion per year, uh, to reaching uh, you know two hundred billion over the next five years, and you know that's a it's a major shock to the system. You know, a good shock, but a shock nevertheless, and uh, and so it does need to be managed. Yeah, that that's a staggering. Th- I'm just kind of. Uh... <laughs> I, that takes my breath away. That, that that kind of magnitude impact on what it would do to local communities and what it would do, uh, and, and how that will touch every element of commerce, uh, from yes. consumption to of basic goods and services. And I mean, we could go into a hugely inflationary state, but I, I don't want this to become an economic forum because, candidly, I'm not that smart to talk about it. Uh, moving forward and on, with regard to um, we hear. Uh, our associates here from clients, my home is perfect for a Chinese buyer. If you were one of our associates, how would you succinctly answer that question uh, in terms of what a, a Chinese buyer really looks for? Uh, I know new construction and there's certain elements of feng shui that they take very, very seriously. Uh, how would you, uh, how could you empower our associates with a response to, uh, to that statement? I'm actually uh, not quite sure how to answer that. I'd actually be very curious to hear what they mean by uh, by the home is perfect for Chinese buyer. You know, it certainly could be the case, and um, 
But uh, I would struggle myself to describe you know, what a perfect home would mean, actually, uh, because uh, there, there's so many different tastes and, and backgrounds and, uh, you know, similar to, to, to any kind of buyer, you know, um, just looking for a home. Uh, there are definite, um, you know, things that you can avoid, if you will. Uh, you mentioned feng shui, and, um, and there is a, even if uh, a Chinese investor doesn't actively practice feng shui or, or believe in it, um, it's almost like culturally ingrained. In it. There are certain things that um, are beneficial, you know, such as uh, sudden exposure, um, the, you know, especially for some of the major rooms, living room, master bedroom, etc. Um, then, you know, the history of the place, and, um, and this is part of the reason why Chinese buyers uh, prefer some new construction, so that um, they are assured that there is no bad karma, if you will, or bad history in the property. Um, and, um, you know, there's uh, you know, the, the layout, location, you know, there are all um, types of factors, but many of them are very similar to, to, to buyers from sort of any kind of uh, cultural or, or ethnic uh, background. Um, specifically, I would say the uh, you know any uh, anything that is um, uh, deemed negative can also be you know can be be mitigated. You know if they really are looking for uh, they fall in love with the property. You know there are certain ways to mitigate um, sort of negative aspects. Um, in terms of location, you know there are uh, just you know traditionally in in China the. Um, uh, there's separation between places where you live and then, um, you know, either religious places or, you know, places where, especially like, um, you know, funeral parlors or uh, uh, graveyards and, and things like that, you know, there's a strong separation of those type of, uh, of properties. And, um, and I think you see much less of that, you know, in, in the West. And so those are the type of things in terms of location that, uh, you know, Chinese buyers would definitely look at you know in the in the neighborhood um but by and large i would yeah i wouldn't really know where to start how to describe the perfect home for a chinese buyer right it, it it is a loaded question when you consider that an entire culture of people uh, to, to, to distill them in into uh, that type of uh, myopic perspective but um we do get asked that question and i think it's interesting that um, the newness of it is less about functionality and that that all the plumbing works, but and it's more about the fact that the bad karma of someone perhaps dying in the house or something yeah. of that nature. Yeah, uh, actually, if you see that, um, uh, there's one thing that we have to talk to a lot of our clients about um, is that in uh, uh, in many cases a pre-owned or previously owned home is uh, preferred, you know, in, in the U.S. and partially because of, uh, you know, the maturity of the community, um, maybe even construction practices that were you know, called wasted more quality or, or higher quality in the past and, um, and, and things of that nature. But uh, even then, uh, no matter how much remodeling the, uh, the, uh, the property has gone through, um, a typical Chinese buyer, when they move in, the first thing they will do is remodel it again, mm. <laughs> and it's uh, and it's actually uh, uh, it has to do with this this issue of uh, you know I won't move into someone else's home, if you will, you know, and because of history and things like that, and so there's a tendency um, from Chinese buyer perspective is I'm going to buy this home, and the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to make it truly mine, you know, and 
um, get rid of its history, if you will. And so um, you'll see that a lot. And you see sort of the uh, um, transdive move in and then almost like tear it up and, uh, and remodel from scratch. Yeah. So, um, and in in the remaining few minutes, a couple of more questions, and I so appreciate your time as you get started on your day tomorrow. Um, type of residence, you know, uh, high-rise condos, we talked briefly about new construction. Uh, historical architecture, that that's an interesting dynamic when you, you bring in the karmic perspective of it, but is there a trend of, of what uh, investors and those looking to relocate here, is there a trend of what they're looking for in their home type of, type of residence? Well, well, I think you touch on that exactly the, the, the factor that uh, plays into here is what's the reason for the investment. And for uh, many of uh, the investors, they just want to park money, actually a luxury or a new condo, new construction condo is the easiest. You know, so it's new, um, it's look at the location, it's um, probably more hassle-free. You know, there are um, companies that can help manage or rent it out. And so um, so this is high on the list if you're just looking to, to sort of park money somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's um, single-family homes or historic um, buildings, it, it really depends on um, you know, whether there's a, sort of a, a trophy element or a prestige element to the, uh, to the investment. And then I think you can get into more um, sort of unique properties and also higher priced properties. And I think you're going to start seeing that more um, once the currency um, limits are removed. You know, and I think um, your true luxury properties are to be purchased by Chinese buyers. I uh, I think is still fairly rare in, uh, in the United States, and some of it has to do with the the limitations on how much money you can take out. Um, once that is lifted, though, you're going to see uh, high net worth and especially ultra high net worth uh, individuals looking for trophy properties, and um, and that will include also historic uh, architecture and landmarks, if you will. So I think you're going to see an appetite for that, and it basically flows from the same trends that you see in China. Um, you know, it used to be that uh, historic architecture uh, was not high on the uh, uh, on the, the investment list. But uh, if you look at Shanghai right now, um, the historic parts of uh, of Shanghai um, are the most expensive. You know, and uh, investors are looking at uh, landmarks to buy. Well, I think that also plays to the whole status component of it as well, doesn't it? The idea that I've got uh, as much money as I could possibly spend, and now uh, the uniqueness factor of what I've got, you can't have because there's only one of them. You know, I, I guess that will start to play. That'll be magnified as well as, as the flow of money comes in, wouldn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's, uh, the, the amount of money is not only going to increase, but the, uh, what's going to change is the type of properties that Chinese investors are going to look for, uh, or going to be able to, uh, to invest in. Um, without the limitation of the cash, uh, especially the ultra high net worth uh, Chinese are going to be able to look at very unique properties and uh, truly luxury properties that um, are going to add to the portfolio of, uh, um, of uh, trophy assets. 
Well, that bodes well for those of us that have uh, ultra high-end listings, I think, in Los Angeles. There is Vancouver. Uh, Can we take a moment on Vancouver? Because uh, I'm told that they've had a 35% uh, increase over the past year. What is the allure of uh, Vancouver? Uh, Well, I think uh, last year uh, with the uh, strengthening of the dollar uh, and the combined with the weakening of uh, the RMB, uh, Canada just became a more uh, better destination, if you will, just from a value perspective. And um, and a lot of the Chinese already had invested in Canada, and uh, you've actually seen that trend uh, over the last, I would say, five to eight years uh, increasing. So there's a familiarity uh, as well, a familiarity factor there as well. But I think some of it was driven by a combination of uh, the dollar, the, the U.S. dollar becoming stronger, RMB becoming weaker, uh, combined with still the um, the you know pent up demand in order to invest overseas. And I think if you look at the type of properties that were uh, purchased, they fall right into the sweet spot, you know, of about uh, half a million dollars to uh, up uh, up to about two million U.S. dollars. And I think the majority of the properties that you uh, see that were purchased during that period of time fall within that range, and that has everything to do again with the uh, the challenges of getting money out. Right. You know, that's sort of a the, the uh, amount that the uh, the Chinese investors can manage. Understood. At least for now. Uh, At least for now. Right. So uh, one last question, and um, with regard to Partners Trust China and and our boots on the ground there, um, would love you just to. Uh, talk with us about the collaborative opportunities for our associates uh, within Partners Trust and also for the Leverage Global Partners Network. Uh, we'd love to hear what you have to say on that. Yeah, I, mean, I think the, uh, you know, what the, the message in, about the, the current situation is very clear. I think this is a, a very good time to basically prepare uh, for uh, what we expect is going to be a pretty massive increase in, uh, in demand you know, coming from China. And uh, right now, I think the best way to do that is to, um, you know, have a to increase your presence as to the type of services and how we distinguish ourselves you know, from all the other options in the marketplace, you know, to a uh, prospective buyer. Um, and to start that with, uh, um, you know, establishing a presence uh, within China and uh, uh, and having both partners trust overall as a brand, but also uh, featuring. A specific uh, uh, brokerage, uh, so, uh, brokers and associates and partners, as well as specific uh, locations, uh, you know, to clients, so, so that they can do their uh, due diligence right now in anticipation of um, the time when they can actually move their money out. You know, so I think this is a wonderful time in order to um, to prepare for that. And uh, having an office in uh, in Shanghai, you know, we talk to clients. Uh, you know, almost daily, and um, and to basically in, in front of them and uh, introducing um, the the different opportunities, different properties, as well as different regions and specific brokers. I think it's a wonderful uh, way to uh, get in front of them on a uh, personal level, um, sort of a, a much more personal than uh, taking out a listing on uh, uh, on various websites. You know, which is something that is still advisable you know everything everything every exposure helps um, but this way in working with uh, partners trust China uh, we can make the experience uh, 
much more personal, and uh, we can tailor the messages as well you know, from uh, specific partners and associates. Well, so much of um, the culture is driven by relation and um, friendship and trust is, is founded not by the authorities, but by the people that you know and that um, you rely on. So I think from a partner's trust perspective, the more friends that we have, the more relationships we have, I think that's going to serve us all very, very well um, today and tomorrow. Uh, yes, there's a, uh, a saying in uh, in Chinese that um, this is said that we, we first will become friends before we become business partners. It is, uh, I think, what it just means is that um, uh, if we can increase the understanding of what uh, the buyer's needs are and provide them with advice and uh, uh, direct them in the um, in, in the right way, if you will, and uh, to so that we can solve their investment needs in the in the property market. Um, by first understanding so who they are and what uh, their families, uh, uh, you know, challenges are, etc., and also what their aspirations are. Um, I think by uh, having that ability to have that conversation uh, in person with them, I think bodes well for our uh, so future business relations that we can build with uh, with these high net worth clients in China. And I think uh, this uh, relationship, you know, we certainly look forward to opportunities to work with uh, partners and associates uh, within um, the, the entire Partners Trust uh, family. Um, and you know, we certainly would welcome any uh, questions that uh, partners and associates may have on uh, how to best also prepare. Um, I think um, there are some wonderful opportunities ahead. And um, you know, by addressing some of these challenges right now, I think we will be uh, well positioned in order to take advantage of them. Well, Sean, I just, again, on behalf of all of us here at Partners Trust uh, and our Partners Trust family, uh, I so appreciate your time. Uh, this has been very enlightening. And, of course, you are our resource. And so for not only for our associates, but for our clients. And uh, we will make sure that they can get in touch with you. And the best way is probably through the Partners Trust site, yes? Yes, that's very much so, yeah. Well, again, have a lovely Tuesday. We will sign off here on Monday night. And uh, for all of us here at Partners Trust, I'm Nick Siegel, and I want to thank you all for tuning in to The Next Level. And we look forward to connecting with you again very soon. Thank you. Thank you.